Anna Anderson is a Reformed Christian with a graduate degree from Reformed Theological Seminary. She has served in Kazakhstan, and she writes, however, of an encounter she had with a pastor in a church in the United States. She says, I had offered to come speak to our elders about women using their teaching gifts in adult Sunday school. I was expecting charitable dialogue about a practice that has some degree of diversity within our denomination, and the elders asked me instead to write a paper first and submit it so that they could, before I, I came before them to speak, uh, and I took a few days and put down my reasons in a paper and waited for a response. Instead, there was no acknowledgement that they had even received it. There was no expression of thanks for my time, and there was no invitation to come to speak to the elders. When I became discouraged with the situation several weeks later, my husband, who was also an elder on the board, uh, noticed and sent the letter to them and said that I could use some encouragement. No real response to his letter. Several weeks after that, the pastor wanted to meet, and he sat down with us. He said that he didn't agree with parts of my paper and that he would be encouraging the elders not to deal with the issue in the near future and that I should wait. Fair enough, yet it wasn't because his demeanor toward me was becoming increasingly cool and at times seemed to go beyond coolness. Over a month later, the pastor, his wife, my husband, and I sat down at our house over lunch to talk. I had never had a lengthy conversation with the pastor's wife before, so I was looking forward to getting to know her and also expecting that she might be able to help her husband express his thoughts and concerns. That was far from what happened. She did most of the talking, and for the next three hours, she expressed tremendous anxiety and consternation over my voice in the church. Her husband offered only a few minor corrections. Her message was, you are an elder's wife. When you walk through the doors of the church, you are to be quiet. As I sought clarification, she told me that my identity was not Anna, not a living member, not a living stone, not a person brought by the Holy Spirit to this church for service according to the gifts that he's given me and love toward me and Jesus, but, but I was simply an elder's wife. She was giving me a new identity. That was the import of the conversation to me. My specific identity as Anna was gone. I was reduced to a role within the organization that had clear rules. Her husband was made, to use Douglas Wilson's language, her husband was made for the garden. I was made to support the gardeners. For me, she said that meant silence, staying in the background asserting nothing that might lead to the building up of God's people unless I was asked. She kept returning to the same sentence. You are an elder's wife. My experience here at Memorial has not been that. <laughs> uh, in fact, we have a long history of elders' wives being very free to express themselves and have their own convictions but nevertheless, I don't know what others' experiences like here or elsewhere, but what Anderson describes resonates with a lot of women in conservative, Bible-believing American churches. They feel like their gifts, their minds, their training are not required unless in service to certain ministries viewed as part of the feminine sphere. They, as human beings, feel like they're expected to recede, and to fail to recede, to express their voice, 
is to be divisive or unsubmissive. Anderson had approached her elders in a posture of humility, teachability, and submissiveness. But even that, sadly, was viewed as threatening. It's the second in a series on the leading women of the Bible, women who were both leaders and who are prominent within the biblical narrative. Uh, As I mentioned last week, the purpose of this sermon series is not to answer every question someone might have about ordination. That's more than can be done in a handful of sermons. Uh, And the purpose is not to talk about Christian marriage, um, but rather it's to look at how God has used women in his purpose, within his kingdom, because I don't want a girl being raised in this church to feel like God wants her to recede. I want her to feel like God has a powerful calling on her life, and she is called to step out in faith and the power of the Holy Spirit with the gospel of God to change the world in whatever big way, small way, visible or invisible way he may call her to. And so today we're going to look at Judges chapter 4 and 5, at Deborah and Jael. In chapter 4, we'll read the first 24 verses. In chapter 5, we'll look at verse 7, then jump ahead to verse 24 and verse 31. This is God's word. After Ehud died, he was a judge of Israel. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Haroshef Hagoyim. Because he had 900 iron chariots that had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. And I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said. I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, The honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. Ten thousand men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Za'anain, near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Haroshef Hagoyim to the Kushan River. And then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And so Barak went down Mount Tabor 
followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim. And all the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Because they were, there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber the Kenite, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. Village life in Israel ceased ceased until I, Deborah, arose a mother in Israel. Most blessed of women, B.J.L., the wife of Heber the Kenite, most blessed of twin-dwelling women. He asked for water, and she gave him milk in a bowl fit for nobles. She brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell dead. Then the land had peace for 40 years. It's a gruesome story. But what do we see here? First, we see God raising up Deborah to, to lead his people as a prophet. Um, you know, prior to the, the conflict of this passage, God had already called Deborah as a prophet, um, as an arbiter and highest leader over Israel. We read of Deborah, a prophetess. It's the same word as prophet. Deborah, a prophet, was leading Israel at that time. Deborah is introduced to us as a prophet. A prophet is a mouthpiece for God, someone who speaks God's words. Uh, this is interesting, if for no other reason, that when you look at the books of the Bible, all of the major prophets and all of the minor prophets were all men. But if you think that that's anything more than just a fact, uh, then you have to take a step back when you come to Deborah, because God makes Deborah a prophet as well. And Huldah and Anna in the Gospels, and Philip's daughters in the book of Acts. Indeed, the first woman called a prophet in the Bible was actually Exodus 15, the prophet Miriam, Moses' sister. 
And so while the Aaronic priests in the temple were always men according to God's will, nevertheless, he raised up both male and female prophets to speak his word and lead his people. And this, this was pretty profound. You know, John Calvin, the 16th century uh, Swiss reformer, who was no fan of women in leadership in any sphere at all, um, when he came to this passage, all he could say is it was an extraordinary thing when God gave authority to a woman. Even John Calvin was left speechless before this text. Of the three offices of the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king, Deborah was a prophet. God alone was king at the time. Uh, notice that all that, that Deborah's leadership entailed, even before she arose as a judge. Uh, we read that Deborah held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. This means that, that she was performing functions of a national leader. It says she was a leader. She was leader of God's people. She was a magistrate. She was an arbiter. All the people would come to her with their conflicts, and she would bring resolution. She was a spirit-empowered tribal chieftain, and the language that's used here is very, very powerful. Um, we don't pick it up in, in English because it's written in Hebrew, and, and these are proper names, and so we just transliterate them into English based on what they sound. But when we read Deborah, prophetess, the wife of Lipido was leading Israel at the time and held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, note what this would have sounded like to the original readers in Hebrew. She was between Ramah and Bethel. Ramah means high place, and Bethel means house of God. It was where Abraham had pitched his tent, where Jacob had wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And the hill country of Ephraim literally translates, Ephraim means fruitfulness, as the mountain of fruitfulness. And so the original audience in Hebrew would hear that Deborah is representing God, speaking for God, exercising God's rule over his people. And as she did so, she was seated beneath a palm tree between high place and house of God on the mountain of fruitfulness. You know, it's quite an image. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel, hill country of Ephraim. Literally, Deborah sat between the high place and the mountain of God upon the mountain of fruitfulness. The imagery reflects her as a, a leader over God's people, grounded in the wisdom of God's word, surrounded by God's presence, calling people to believe and obey God, and seeing the fruitfulness that flows from the righteousness and the justice of walking in obedience to God's commands. God's blessing and God's shalom is here. It's rich language of, of Deborah between the house of God and the high place place on the mountain of fruitfulness leading the people. And as a leader, as a prophet of God, she shows incredible wisdom and courage and effectiveness as she leads the Old Testament church. See, she was a prophet, but then God raised her up to be more than a prophet. We also see God raising up Deborah to lead his people as judge. When the Israelites cried out to God in their suffering, as they do throughout the book of Judges, you know, they sin, God brings suffering, they cry out to God for help, God delivers them, and then they have peace. Until they repeat, you know, it's sort of like wash, rinse, repeat over and over again. But in this book of Judges, she's presented as one of the judges of Israel. Specifically, she's either the third or possibly fourth, depending on how you count them. She followed Othniel and Ehud as judge, and she was followed by Gideon as judge. What was a judge? 
in our modern day usage, we think judge, we think judicial branch, not executive, not legislative branch. That's not exactly what she did. She did some of that, settling people's disputes, we read, but there was no judicial branch because that was God. He gave his law, and you weren't allowed to add to it or subtract from it. And, uh, uh, and yet what, what she was doing, what a judge was at heart, was, was a spirit-filled leader that God would raise up for a season, particularly when God's people were under attack by their enemies, the enemies of God. And Deborah exercises this temporary kingly rule under God the king. Um, judges were often called deliverers because God raised them up to deliver his people when they cried out to them in their oppression. Note that she was a leader even while she was married. She was the wife we read of Lapidoth. We can only wonder what that was like. What would it have been like to be, you know, Mr. Margaret Thatcher at home? I have no idea. Lapidoth is only mentioned the one time, but it seems that God gave Deborah the wisdom to exercise authority over his people, setting their disputes and speaking the word of God, even while in her own home she would have been expected to defer to her husband. She had the wisdom to navigate that potential conflict of interest. Deborah alone counseled Barak. She alone is called the mother of Israel. She managed to be a wife and at the same time a prophet and a judge of the people of God. You know, she has great faith here, and God is pleased to speak through her. Notice how, how she speaks in the first person in God's voice. She says, the Lord, speaking to Barak, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. And I, she's speaking, but the I is God. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, and I'll give him over into your hands. Deborah shows incredible courage facing an enemy. She too is willing to go to the battlefield. She also has the courage to rebuke Barak for being a coward and for disbelieving the word of God from her lips when he says, oh, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. <laughs> she's, the, she's the prophet. God has spoken. He's saying he will not obey God unless the prophet goes with him. And so she rebukes them. That takes courage in any culture, in any setting. But she could speak boldly. And, and it's not the first time that she, that she probably had to have courage. I mean, we read that Israel was filled with sin and unbelief during this era. And she is settling disputes under the palm tree, you know, between, you know, the, 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 mount, the, the, the mountain of God and the high place. Uh, she's settling disputes. You know there would have been people trying to curry influence probably trying to bribe her, maybe trying to threaten her, and yet she always did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And that takes incredible courage when you've got pressure from every angle. It would take courage for anyone, particularly in that cultural context. And her leadership was effective. Her leadership brought 40 years of peace to the people of God. Her account ends with the conclusion, then the land had peace for 40 years. Her leadership stands out, particularly when you compare it to what came after her and after the period of judges when the Israelites demanded a king to rule over them like the nations had. And, of course, they had their king and a couple more, and then they split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And, and the vast majority of the kings of Judah in the south were horrible men, awful, unbelieving, godless men who were cowardly. 
and all of the kings of the north in Israel were horrible, godless men. And in contrast, Deborah is presented here as righteous, doing what pleased the Lord, as a wise and godly leader. She stands out by contrast against the kings of Israel. I've heard some argue that God only raised up Deborah as a woman to lead because there were no godly, mature men available at the time. Um, and if there were no godly or mature men available, that God is sovereign, and that's because God gave no godliness or maturity to any men. So he's responsible either way. But it neglects the fact that God raised up Samson and Gideon, and they were not known for being exceptionally strong in their faith. Deborah remains this remarkable figure over 3,000 years later. Whatever gender stereotypes we might have in view, whether ancient or modern, Deborah breaks all of them. She is not ladylike. She doesn't conform to our Western culturally relative expectations about what femininity should look like. She's a fearless leader, a woman who was strong and confident and more than able to lead the people of God. God raised her up for that. And yet, interestingly, Scripture does engender Deborah's leadership. Scripture describes her leadership style and experience as maternal. She says, village life in Israel ceased, ceased until I, Deborah, arose a mother of Israel. You know, it's not that Deborah was trying to be masculine. It's not that she were trying to act like a man. The Bible says she was leading in a quintessentially female way as a mother to Israel whose children were threatened. And the Bible celebrates this as a strength and not as a concession. You know, if you want to see what motherly leadership looks like, you can watch as a mother gently gets down on eye level with her kids and pulls them in and whispers to them. Uh, you know, you can also see it in a um, female mother polar bear if you threaten her cubs. That's maternal leadership, and that's the kind of leadership that Deborah is showing as the leader of Israel, as the judge. Uh, you know, we're seeing God raising up Deborah to lead as a prophet, first magistrate, and then as a judge or deliverer. But we're also seeing God raising up other women in the Old Testament. We see Jael here described as this courageous warrior in disguise. Uh, she's identified as Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. You know, she in some ways is defined by the people who know her and love her. Uh, the Kenites were an independent tribe related through marriage to Moses, and they were a friendly tribe. Many of them worshipped the God of the Jews, and as she was most blessed of tent-dwelling women, we can infer that she also was a worshiper of Yahweh, the Jewish God. And what happens is Sisera is defeated on battle, and, and as the leader, he escapes, and he is looking for refuge, for safety, because he has to hide. There's no way he can outrun the entire army of Israel. And so he comes across Jael's tent, and she invites him in and says, basically, I'll protect you. You know, she, he asks for water. She gives him nice milk, milk and cookies. It's so nice here. Cover yourself up. Here's a big blanket. Oh, don't worry. If they come and ask, sure, I'm not going to say yes, but I'm not going to say no. Oh, why don't you go to sleep? Rest, honey, dear. It's just going to be fine. Then she gets a tent peg and bam, drives it right through his skull. Um, if you want, you can order your, your pumpkin spice latte in a travel mug. We've got a photo of a travel mug here. Um, uh, 
you know, thank you. That's enough of that. Um, I'm not selling them, but Google it. You'll find it. It comes in other colors as well. I think you, black or black or pink, depending on your preference. Jael is, is here another woman who's taking the initiative on behalf of the people of God. And this man is coming in like the serpent in the garden, tempting her to lie, to deceive. And, and unlike Eve, she's actually not deceiving uh, uh, anybody except the deceiver himself. And, and, and she's the one who crushes his head. It's, it's incredible imagery. And we see other women leaders in the Hebrew Scriptures. We read in 1 Chronicles 7 of the daughter of Bariah, who built three cities. His daughter, we read, was She'erah, who built lower and upper Beth Horan, as well as Uzen Shirah. Those first two towns are still there, just northwest of Jerusalem. We read about Abigail, who in her husband's failed leadership, takes spiritual leadership over her family to lead them to the Lord and brings safety and rescues all of their lives, saves them, and saves David from shedding blood that he didn't need to, to shed. We read in Second Chronicles and Second Kings about Huldah, who is the prophetess that the Jewish king Josiah went to after they had read, found, discovered the, the word of the Lord, the law of God, and read it, and he was cut to pieces because he was convicted by their sin before God's word. And they go and they seek out hold of the prophetess and they ask her what God requires of them. He sends five courtiers to her and she spoke God's word in his voice, saying what God wanted. And they submit to the word of God that came from her very female lips. And the people of God accept God's word through her and her prophecy sparks what was probably the largest spiritual revival recorded in all of the Hebrew scriptures. You know, the prophet Joel predicted that sons and daughters alike would prophesy, and we can speak also of, of the initiative shown by Ruth, or the initiative shown by Esther, a, a Jewish queen in Persia, whose wisdom and decisive action saved her people by God's design from genocide. You know, we, you know, the the words of women come to us infallibly inspired by the Holy Spirit in the song of Miriam and in the song of Deborah, in the prayer of Hannah, in the prophecies of Abigail and of, of Huldah, and later in the song of Elizabeth and in Mary's Magnificat, God's people. We've always faced threats, and God has always raised up deliverers. And sometimes those deliverers were women, and often they were men. God shows us how he raises up deliverers for his people as we're facing repression in our weakness and we cry out to God, he raised up Deborah and Jael and so many more throughout history. How is it possible for us to see God's power in our lives as a church and individually? We see here in Judges that God gives strength to us when we surrender to him. Jesus is our Ezer. He is our Savior, our Rescuer. And when we surrender, he comes to us. It's the cycle in Judges. that God hands us over, and we realize we're in over our heads. We can't save ourselves. It gets us to actually look outside ourselves to God and trust in him, and then he's pleased to come and deliver us. It's what we read in Scripture when it says, Humble yourselves in the eyes of the Lord, and he will lift you up. It's a conditional promise that, that if you abase yourself before God, he will exalt you. And remember where God's promise to deliver sent him. Sent him to send Jesus into our world to take on our human nature, 
to absorb us into himself and to take the curse that we could no longer carry, the justice that we would otherwise face, and to take it for us so that we will never experience this ourselves. This is the love of God who raises up people like Deborah to do great things upon his earth. Harvey Cox describes his experience visiting an evangelical Pentecostal church in Brazil in the 1980s. The church was in an impoverished favela over Rio de Janeiro. Those are the, the shantytown slums that go up the sides of the mountains while all the rich people live in the middle. The congregation was called Amor de Deus, and it meets in a huge courtyard between two tenement buildings in a dilapidated slum. And on a clear, cool night, he watched as 600 Brazilians came to worship Jesus in this Pentecostal church. They would raise their hands, they would clap, they sang songs about the love of Jesus and the rivers of blessings that were flowing and about how God is here and he loves us. And then finally, a pastor calls to the pulpit a tall, handsome black woman who is neatly but inexpensively dressed in a ginger and white dress and light tan open sandals. Her name is Benedita da Silva, a member of the congregation. She marches to the platform, she tests the microphone, she looks out across the sea of expectant faces, she smiles, and then she begins to give her Christian testimony. We have a picture of Benedita. Benedita was raised, she says, in an impoverished favela by semi-literate parents who were often sick and out of work. Her grandmother had been a slave in Brazil, and her own mother did the washing for the rich people who in Rio continue to live in close proximity to the poor. Benedita, as a young girl, often delivered heavy baskets of freshly ironed shirts and embroidered linen to the wealthy families, always to the back door. As a black child, even in supposedly colorblind Brazil, she felt the sting of racist insults when people would sometimes call her a preta, which is Portuguese for the N-word. The religion of Benedita's uh, upbringing was Umbanda, a Brazilian version of African folk religion, sort of a voodoo, but in Portuguese instead of French Creole. Uh, she tells the congregation about the customs, the practices. She, her own mother was an Umbanda priestess, and she assisted her mother in rituals, and yet she says it never helped her know who she was, and it never showed her what God wanted her to be. She became discouraged. In her early 20s, things got so desperate that she felt she wanted to die. She calls herself three times a minority, black, a woman, and poor. She faced the death of her own children, a botched abortion, her mother dying, her husband dying, her living in absolute bondage and slavery, helpless against all the powers that surrounded and oppressed her and left her and so many like her beaten down. But it was then, at age 26, that God spoke to her. She met Jesus as her Savior, Jesus as her Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit entered her life, and she became transformed, and the joy of salvation entered her life, and she began to believe that God could actually do something in her and through her. And then Benedita began to weave into her narrative some observations about the cruel way Brazilian society treats poor people the corrupt politicians, the big businesses, the, the, the bribery. She talked about how she had been 
working as a street vendor when God had led her to want to do something about all the misery that surrounded her. And so she had taken a course and become a nurse's aide. And then she became a volunteer community organizer. Still dissatisfied, she'd become active in the newly formed kind of center-left political coalition that first appeared in Brazil in the late 1970s as the major opponent of the military dictatorship that then ruled the land. So many of the lay activists, the writers, the labor union leaders, uh, 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 so, so writes Cox, so many of the leaders in that movement he had met, and yet a black Pentecostal woman? When Benedict talked about her work in government, he writes, I leaned forward. I wasn't expecting it. By now, she had been elected to the Rio City Council, where she believed that she was able to serve God and serve the poor from a position of responsibility. The congregation hallelujahed and applauded as she then got back and took her seat in the congregation. In 1986, Benedita was then elected the first black woman ever to serve in the Brazilian Congress. Two years later, in 1988, she helped draft a new Brazilian constitution. She was instrumental for the first time in placing constitutional rights within the constitution, protecting domestic workers who had often been treated nearly as slaves. Da Silva headed a commission of inquiry into the heated debate over women's forced sterilization by the government. She investigated the murder of 7,000 street children a year in Brazil. She was one of the first to call for the impeachment of a corrupt president who had stolen millions from the Brazilian people. In 1994, she won election to become Brazil's first female senator of any race. In 2002, this sister in Jesus became governor of the state of Rio de Janeiro. And now at age 80, she remains very active in her church, leading Bible studies and prayer groups, and she remains an advocate for the rights of children, of women, of people of color in Brazilian society and government. But all of that was still future 40 years ago when this white Protestant American scholar sat in this little, poor, you know, favela church, Pentecostal church, when Benedita gave her testimony about how she came to Jesus. Benedita later writes this, Spiritual power in Jesus radically changed my life and enabled me to take part in government. Reading the Bible has shown me that my only ability comes from God. It shows me that women were created for the glory of God. The Bible gives examples of women with important roles. Jesus was a friend of women and had great tenderness for them. She says, I have traveled through the Bible, and when I look at my life, I see how the Bible has helped me overcome so much. It's revealed what's now inside of me. Jesus, the divine power of God, his Holy Spirit operating in my life. And when I face impossible difficulties, I talk to God. I invoke the tenderness and the love of God as my companion, my husband, and my faithful friend. She writes, public service is a part of my life. Yet I'm without political ambition. I don't seek fortunes. Losing or winning in elections is all the same to me. Have you ever heard a politician say that it doesn't really matter whether I win or lose the election just so long as I make a principled stand for God's word? Basically, she says, I'm a social worker and a civil servant, and I'm at the service of the collective body representing blacks, 
women, the poor, children, and those who live in shanty towns. I am a woman of God, transformed by Jesus, who took me out of the bottom of the well and who set me on my feet. A sister of Jesus, a beautiful leader, submissive to God's word and ready to step out in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray.